0: Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo López, and today I'm joined by Dr. Marco del Giudice. He is Associate Professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of New Mexico. In his work he explores a wide range of topics at the intersection of human behavior, evolution and development. And today we're going to focus mostly our conversation on uh, his recent book evolutionary psychopathology a unified approach so dr del this. thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show
1: thanks for having me
0: okay great so i mean i've been having quite a lot of evolutionary psychologists on the show uh, so the first question i would like to ask you and it is related of course to the title of your book what is evolutionary psychopathology
1: all right well uh you could um that's an easy question to start with so evolutionary psychopathology the way i intend it is um we're trying to figure out uh the origin and the logic of mental disorders so this has been an incredibly tricky question to answer actually kind of surprisingly tough so even after uh, hundreds of years of trying and, and models and different approaches and lots of research, it's really tried to make sense of psychopathology uh, in a way that's satisfactory, the way that's other areas of, of medicine. So one uh, thing that's missing from psychopathology is, I think, a grounded model of the mind and behavior. So you had attempts to make sense of mental disorders that were based on uh, models of the mind that were not particularly good or realistic and then there's a reaction to that which is to stop worrying about theory essentially and make it a completely empirical enterprise, it's the DSM that's one, one way to do that or you can go empirical and just start analyzing correlations between symptoms and try to build you know, rebuild the uh, the whole thing from the bottom up. Uh, and what's still missing is a uh, reasonable working model of the mind and behavior that's based on, you know, biological insights. So evolutionary psychopathology would be uh, a way to do that. Start from what we know from evolutionary psychopathology, evolutionary genetics, uh, evolutionary approaches to neuroscience, and then bring it together, um, build the foundations, and then on that... Uh, try to reach an understanding of how mental disorders arise, what they, you know what are they um, why they happen, what vulnerability is, uh, and then make sense of the hopefully of the whole thing in a way that works better than we have today.
0: Okay, and uh, you said better than we have today so uh-huh. uh, I mean that, that's an interesting point there to make because uh, in what ways would you say that? the approach that you have evolutionary psychopathology mm-hmm. and you and and what you and other people are trying to do here would improve um, clinical psychology and psychiatry and at what levels? Because I guess that uh, there are several different issues occurring in those disciplines and, and practices. So what would you like to say about that?
1: Okay. Um, well, there's a number of ways in which you in which you could improve, and one is to uh, first. Uh, and what I've more I've been working uh, mostly about is uh, the classification of disorders. So part of my book is about you know trying to uh, put forward a a classification a, a taxonomy of disorder that's based on. Um, a certain understanding of human behavior and patterns in human behavior, so that would be, uh, that would be a good thing. And right now I mean, this is not completely lacking uh, in psychopathology, so it's not like we don't have uh, an understanding of behavior, but um, it's a bit disconnected from models of, uh, for example, you know, uh, personality traits and cognitive uh, functions. It's uh, particularly disconnected from what we know about development so um, it's bits and pieces and, and for example people are trying right now to, uh, to build uh, so-called transdiagnostic models of psychopathology in which you have, instead of the usual categories that the DSM have for example, you're looking at dimensions of symptoms, so be internalizing symptoms that are, have to do with uh, anxiety, depression, negative emotionality uh, and then you have externalizing symptoms where the main thing is um, impulsivity, disinhibition, aggression and so forth. And then you can relate those dimensions to uh, personality traits. For example, there's, you know, you, it, it's not hard to find correspondence between uh, broad dimensions of psychopathological symptoms and uh, normal personality traits, like you could map this on the big five. Model. Uh, the problem with that is that, <laughs> so take the big five model of personality, so that itself is really a descriptive model. It's not a functional model of, of behavior and personality. It really is an empirical model that you get by uh, factor analyzing a large number of uh, personality items. So it, it has a lot of value, but you <laughs> it would be a mistake to think that that is a grounding. It's a functional grounding. Right? It's just descriptive, so you're basically stacking one descriptive enterprise about psychopathological symptoms on another enterprise that's descriptive. And you're still left without a, uh, a solid theory of why things go together the way they do and why some uh, processes are more prone to uh, malfunction or, or function in, uh, you know let's say, an undesirable way uh, than others and so on and so forth. On the other hand, uh, another approach that's uh really get, getting a lot of traction is computational approaches uh or so I, I see a lot of connection are you familiar with the rdoc that's the uh, no. research domain criteria that's a um that's a very ambitious project that was la- launched by the uh, national institute for mental health and the idea there is really to replace eventually replace the dsm-based You know, descriptive uh, categories with something that's uh, bottom up, starting from uh, neurobiology and neural circuits. So the idea is you study, you know, uh, brain uh, functions. Localized brain functions are as specific as possibly can. For example, you know, uh, that could be, um, you know, fear, uh, anxiety. Uh, you could have feeding processes that regulate hunger and and uh, and feeding patterns and so on and so forth so you, you identify the uh, the brain basis of those uh, you develop scales to uh, kind of assess the uh, functioning of those mechanism behavior so the RDoC is grounded in neurobiology so the main uh, the main focus there is on the on the neural circuits that let's say uh, mediate those uh, those functions. Uh, and then people in computational psychiatry are working mainly from a cognitive perspective, so they use models of, say, decision making or uh, mathematical models or neural function to uh, pretty much do the same thing. So isolate specific function and, and processes, and then the idea would be that you can at some point build a new classification system that based on these uh, on these processes and and mechanisms instead of ha- relying on these. Uh, categories that are to some extent they are artificial, uh, we all know that they mix different things you know uh, together and so forth. So whether those, the question is are those approaches going to succeed and so I mean, they're generating a lot of interesting research. Um, my, I have two reservations about these two, these, these, these approaches and one is um, it's really hard to build a complete theory of behavior and the mind f- completely from the bottom up. <laughs> it's really, it's really hard and we know already quite a bit about how different types of behaviors and, and, and functions go together. Uh, so for example, I, I don't think most, most people in computational psychiatry uh, link their work to say uh, research on intelligence. So we know a lot about the structure of intelligence cognitive abilities and how things correlate together in a big picture uh, So it would be you th- you would think it would be useful to relate that kind of approach to this bottom-up approach which you try to identify very specific functions and so on that's not happening too much and same for uh, neurobiology and, and research on personality on the other hand one thing that's I think a limitation of these approaches right now I mean, doesn't have to be but right now I think it's, it's a strong limitation uh, they tend to be a bit uh, abstract for example computational models and I, I'm a big fan so I, <laughs> I read a lot of that so <laughs> um, this is not this is not a, a deep criticism but the way they are deployed they're deployed in a very very abstract way so you have a model in which you have some kind of decision-making process you have some rewards some costs and um, this, this individual is trying to optimize some function of some kind of generic rewards and um, and avoid punishment and so forth so you can get some good insights from that but uh, it's completely lacking the specificity of you know where there are different types of rewards <laughs> there are social rewards there are you know sexual rewards uh, some rewards that uh, have to do with you no know, status and dominance some rewards that do with you know caregiving and uh, and you i think you can make a really good case that the logic underlying these different types of of goals and uh and motivations is actually different there's some specificity in the in the way you reach those goals and so forth and if you there's uh, some of the behaviors you uh you engage in are not just for your own, let me say this this way. So some a lot of behaviors we uh, we engage in have a communicative function. So you're not just doing something to obtain X in the world. You're also signaling other people uh, something about you, something about your intentions, and so forth. So in some symptoms, uh, I think there's again a good case that a lot several symptoms of psychopathology might have a communicative function instead of just a kind of personal. Um, uh, let's say uh, disconnected function and so on. So unless you embed these models into a let's say ecologically realistic model um, <laughs> of what human beings uh, are for, what are they trying to do, what are the you know, uh, motivations we, uh, we have, what, how does our social structure work. How does it relate to our you know, evolutionary history and so forth? Then I think they will remain a bit, in the end, uh, you don't realize the potential of these approaches. So I'm all for neurobiology, I'm all for computational analysis, but uh, it's not going to work, that would be my prediction, unless you embed it into a realistic model of the organism. Just to make it a final example, the doc criteria there's a there's a, a very nice web page in which people are kind of updating all the uh, circuits that make up this model and the sources of evidence for each and the last time i, ch- I checked every like six months ago and, and, and take a look um, so for example i i don't think there is any uh slot in the model for uh, sex and mating mm-hmm. that seems an interesting omission you know, a lot of things about organism is, you know, ultimately about sex and mating. Um, and of course, the reason is that uh, people who do lab- laboratory study of animals usually don't study that kind of behavior. It's kind of not the domain. So you can study fear and anxiety and defense reactions and, you know, um, whatever, uh, pathfinding, feeding behavior, that stuff on which you have thousands of studies. Not so many people are studying mating. And, and also because, you know, these species you're, you're using for this kind of studies are, are, are not, um, they're you know, heavily kind of inbred domesticated, so they're kind of artificial in a sense. But anyways, so um, there are big missing pieces from the puzzle. And an evolutionary approach, I think, really alerts you to this. You, you can't have a, a broad evolutionary approach to uh, the mind and behavior and forget about mating. Uh, you just can't, so that would be, you know, uh, one nice way to start. So have a realistic picture of what we're, uh, what the organization is about and what are the costs and benefits and so forth. This is another, uh, we, we can talk more about this later maybe, but the idea of trade-offs and the fact that behaviors have cost and benefits and you're always in a, in a tricky situation, there's no optimal behavior that's just good in every possible sense, that's also another good insight. Hmm.
0: So, I I mean, I guess that a very big component that we have to tackle here uh, that's behind psychopathology is development. Because, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, we we are trying to ground things here in evolution, in evolutionary psychology, but I guess that we can't separate uh, development from the evolutionary basis. I I mean, Mm how a particular organism, in this case, us humans, Uh, evolved. uh, And because there are certain aspects of our development that are, uh, I wouldn't like to use the word Mm -hmm. hardwired. I I mean, it is somewhat close to that. In in your book, you, for example, at Mm -hmm. a certain point say that uh, there are several developmental processes that are highly canalized. Mm-hmm. I think this is the uh-huh. term that you use. So, yeah. could you explain that?
1: Sure. I mean, the uh, canalization is a, it's really a general term
0: uh,
1: in developmental biology, and it means that you... So, generally speaking, developmental processes are trying to develop a certain phenotype, and there's so many ways in which things could go wrong. You know uh, so as a rule you don't want to be too sensitive to all the little details and random events that happen in the environment you know fluctuations in whatever nutrients and uh, uh, I don't know it could be anything you know uh, hormones and, and uh, gene products and uh, of course just think of a developmental process that's completely uh, but there can't be, you know, there must be some structure, but it's very open to all sorts of information from, you know, genes and the environment and so forth. It seems like a, a good thing, uh, but it's probably not, because then every, you know, every little, you know, mutations or unanticipated little accident can derail the process and you, you end up in a different, uh, different region where uh, the trait is not adaptive anymore. So as a rule, development, um, one thing it does, it just protects, the development of the phenotype from, uh, from noise, essentially. Um, and that's a paradox, because you also want to be open to sources of useful information from the environment. That would be adaptive plasticity. But, you know, uh, the background is that plasticity per se is not necessarily a good thing and, and probably mostly damaging to the organism. So uh, there's, a, there's a role for plasticity that is adaptive, but there are constraints on it. Uh, and that's uh, that's pretty much what it is so that's that's the idea general idea of canalization and then uh, there are regularities in human development uh, for sure in terms of when different behaviors emerge um, when uh, especially if you take like, a motivational perspective uh, different types of, uh, of motivations and goals actually kind of come online at <clears throat> fairly specific points in development there are some Uh, Probably some parts of development in which people are more sensitive to some uh, factors than others, Uh, and then you have, uh, you know, more influence of the uh, um, family uh, processes. We can talk about attachment maybe later, Uh, and what happens when your social world gets populated by uh, peers. You know not just by your parents and family but uh, but by uh, other people more or less from your age and so forth so of course then you need different goals and motivation that's that's what happens uh, hormonal processes that's that's very important I mean, you have puberty there are some other hormone transitions in middle childhood that could be relevant or actually there's quite a bit of evidence that they are relevant for some uh, disorders so um, Again, you want to integrate, though. That's the thing. You want to integrate this understanding of development within a broader picture of uh, of the goals of development. Um, and this is something that, again, I think an evolutionary approach can uh, can do for you. And mental disorders, there's um, there's a, a really big database on the developmental pattern. So the age of Uh, onset of the symptoms, you can differentiate sometimes between subtypes or different versions of disorder based on the age at which they arise. And uh, it's really exciting to begin to connect that descriptive uh, knowledge about developmental patterns to the function of developmental processes.
0: And, I mean, in development, I guess that there's a big aspect there that we have to explore here that Mm -hmm. has to do with motivational systems. I guess that this is a big topic in development. So, uh, could you tell us what motivational systems are from a biological slash evolutionary perspective?
1: Okay. uh, Well, I use that construct in the book quite a bit. Um, and the idea of a motivational system is that, um, okay, first thing is motivation is not general purpose. And that's, of course, very, uh, very evolutionary, right? So we, you know, you have different uh, things you need to do in order to achieve eventual, so you can maximize fitness directly. So you have to do things like survive for at least for a while. And then you have to, you know, get energy for uh, for your process. You need to get food. You need to, well, then you need to avoid a food that's uh, toxic or, or dangerous items. Uh, and then you need to, you know, establish your place in a, in a social network. Uh, you need to, you know, uh, well, uh, get protection from your parents. Uh, you need to uh, compete for uh, status of, you know, in various uh, ways. Uh, at some point you, Probably won't find mates and uh, you know have uh, offspring yourself. So those and the idea is that e- each of these domains requires slightly different um, uh, rules of operation, and you have to compromise between all those things. Because you know the motivation compete for your time, compete for your behavior. So the and the the idea of motivational assist is actually a very old idea, um, and there's a funny kind of funny story here. Uh, because I, I just went back, but a few days ago, because I was reading uh, Jack Panksepp. Um, are you familiar with his works? He's a neurobiologist, and he's being uh, well, he's been uh, working on essentially motivational systems. What he calls, I think, uh, primary effective systems. I would call you know motivational systems, um, on a neuro, from a neurobiological perspective. Uh, but uh, I was reading his uh, his book, his final book, and um, I discovered that uh, William McDougall, so he was writing, his psychologists were writing in the uh, 1910s, 1920s, and he was, you know, he came up with a list of primary kind of, he was calling them instincts, but uh, he really had a motivational theory. Uh, each of them was a, a system with a goal, certain behavior, certain learning mechanisms built in, and the list McDougall's list from a century ago is very very close to the list I provide in the book so there's kind of a you know, circling. Uh, uh, it's interesting and the idea that um, a motivational system would be a some kind it's, a, it's an abstract construct so it's not like necessarily something we know how to pinpoint in the brain but the idea is that you have some kind of goal-directed system that selects some, uh, does some important functions for you. One is to select from the environment, what happens to you, uh, attract your attention or make some uh, things in the environment salient. Uh, And then uh, manage the balance uh, of behavior by negotiating probably with other systems that are uh, worried about other salient things in the environment. So I might be hungry right now. Okay, so my, the idea is that I have a motivational system that mediates, um, you know, feeding, and it's attracting my attention to, you know, things that are potential food items, uh, you know, triggering some certain kinds of thoughts and changing my physiology and adjusting my behavior, triggering some, some feelings. And, and then uh, I hear, you know, scary noise behind me and there's, you know, someone running towards me screaming, you know then you have the, you know, other motivations taking over. So there's there's a balance between systems where uh, you're competing, uh, things that are competing for attention, and there's some kind of hierarchy or, or some kind of regulation. So motivational systems give you uh, broad goals, uh, and, and the idea is that you, you know, those systems are kind of, constantly working, to, from the moment they come online, uh, monitoring your your situation, your environment for whether your goals have been reached or not, you know, how far you are from, it's kind of, you know, and the idea is that of a uh, kind of cybernetic system, right, there's kind of feedback regulation or, or, or some kind of proactive regulation, but you're trying to reach some goals, uh, you have a sense of whether the goals are, are getting closer or farther away, uh, and you get certain behaviors that are uh, generally useful to reach those goals that are deployed with more uh, probability when the system is activated uh, and then if you actually are able to reach the goals and you get some reward but the, again rewards tend to be very specific in this view it's not any reward we do each system wants enough you know, and certain things so if, for example if uh, the attachment system which we understand very well because there's been a lot of research uh, infants and children have a very strong motivation to keep the caregiver uh, available. Mm -hmm. could be physically close, that's usually especially at the beginning, but then especially as children grow older, physical proximity um, is still important but it can be replaced to some extent by just the knowledge that the caregiver is going to come in in case of need. So the caregiver, you want availability of the caregiver. Usually, nothing you know, nothing much happens. But when the the, the baby or the child gets, uh, you know, for example, there's something scary, so they're fearful, or they feel uh, pain or some kind of you know, threatening negative emotion, then you see you know, this system kind of getting online, activating and triggering some behaviors like again, you know, crying for uh, crying for attention or uh, trying to you know, solicit the attention of the caregiver and so forth. And then if the caregiver comes and comforts the child. Um, that goes up, that's, you know, that ends. So you have a, a kind of shutting off of the system. So you can think of the systems as being in the background and they get kind of activated when there's something particularly salient in the environment that uh, has to do with their, with their goal, whether a threat to the goal or an opportunity to reach the goal. And then they, uh, they uh, I mean, the activate is a bit of a uh, kind of abstract form, but that's, uh, that's what I would say, when they're no longer uh, needed. Um, The one thing about, I want to say about motivational system is that they don't have to be completely hardwired. I mean, it makes sense that there is some structure. Uh, And and again, uh, you don't want to uh, have to relearn what it takes to you know say uh obtain status obtain mates and what it means to find an attractive you know so some some parameters take a system that regulates say sex and mating again uh there will be some probably some kind of innate information about uh attractive qualities in partners uh there will be some uh, behaviors that are fairly automatic uh, part of the regulation of behavior through motivational systems mediated by feelings and emotions. And uh, and then, of course, you have to learn about the specific contingencies in your environment. So you need to learn the specifics. So, you know, what is an attractive partner in your environment? Uh, what is your potential to attract uh, uh, You know, an attractive partner, and you should probably adjust your behavior depending on you know who's you know who's your competition, what are you, uh, what's your potential, and so on. So these systems, one one of the things they do is they guide learning. They're not they're not replacing learning. Because one misconception is that uh, this idea of these multiple motivational systems guiding your behaviors is that you're just a puppet of these, you know, hardwired motivations that just, you know, come on and off and, and, uh, and pull the strings. Um, but the idea here, I- even for t- something like, you know, hardwired kind of, a- fairly hardwired like attachment responses, the children learn how the, the caregiver responds and they adapt their behavior to the caregiver. So, for example, some children start by uh, crying a lot, trying to attract the attention, and when it becomes clear that the caregiver is not responding to that, maybe because the caregiver is you now, it gets actually irritated by the crying, and now the child learns to keep a distance, and now the there's still an attachment. Uh, activation and attachment behaviors but they change in quality and they become more you know subtle and you you try to find a compromise so uh, learning is not an alternative I think to uh, to this idea of motivational systems it's actually motivational systems are what enable learning to be adaptive in context but without losing track of the big motivations of the organism
0: Since you're referring to attachment, let me just ask you right away another question about it, because, uh, I mean, there's attachment theory that Mm. was originally from Mm -hmm. John Bowlby, I think. And then, I mean there are some general attachment styles like Mm. secure anxious Mm. i mean i don't know the others by heart but (laughs) i guess that doesn't matter here Uh, but Ah. i I mean i guess that until recently uh, in attachment theory people theorize that uh, the way by which the the particular child, for example, evolved or or developed a particular attachment style Mm -hmm. was because she was exposed to, for Mm -hmm. example, a certain type of parenting Mm -hmm. style. Mm -hmm. But isn't it the case that more recently people have been questioning that and saying that maybe it, is, it has much more to do with individual variation at the level of personality, for example, and that mm. different children with different personalities mm. react to the same kind of parenting style in different ways.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... Uh, so I, I don't think we have that figured out yet. But yeah, I mean, the, so the uh, the way attachment theory starts... And again, Bobby... Uh, just an interesting reminder for you know, who's watching. Uh, one thing that was unique about John Bowlby—he was psychoanalyst, uh, but he got uh, really, really uh, into the uh, the biology, the ethology of the time, uh, and the kind of uh, blossoming cognitive psychology. So he was—you can say—you can really say that attachment theory was the first instance of kind of well-developed evolutionary psychology uh, at a time, and then uh, well. It got you know it got really successful so it, it, it entered the mainstream uh, eventually and uh, let's say the, the most people who work on attachment right you know today they're not particularly aware or, or interested in the evolutionary roots. and i you know i've done it other people have done it so we've been trying to argue that the the field should reconnect with uh it's kind of initial um uh initial theoretical background to make progress. But so uh, in attachment, the initial idea is that again, um, you uh, children have this uh, primary, mo- a very strong motivation to keep the caregiver available. Uh, there's survival reason to it, it's not just just because there's a, a strong evolutionary reason because children need to, need protection, need to you know and, and can't survive or protect themselves from dangers by themselves. So they they really need a caregiver to uh, to do this for them. And so they should have a very you know a strong and and um, how to say a prioritized system to keep the caregiver available and and, and get what they need from them. So um, originally the the theory is is a you know, there's an evolutionary <laughs> um, aspect in the, in the goal of the attachment system, which is based on survival and avoiding and dangers and so forth. But uh, then the way in which the attachment system develops, that comes really from qu- quite a bit from the kind of psychodynamic tradition, really is a sort of learning process. So depending on the parent's reactions uh, and on, on whether a child is successful or not in negotiating the, the request, then he, uh, the child forms uh, internal models of the parents and the environment, and what happens when I'm in distress, what happens when I ask for help, and that gets behavior. Mm. So it's very environmental. It's a strong environmentalist. Mm. And you find, again, especially the first studies, that's kind of the, the, uh, uh, there's also a, A kind of uh, a dynamic here just the first studies of families and multiple generations of attachment between parents and child and children they found very high rates of concordance so you could predict the child's attachment styles from uh, things about the parents including the sensitivity of the parents uh, or even the parents representations about attachment uh, and you could make really good predictions about the child's uh, attachment style so that seemed to fit Uh, a very nice environmental uh, story Um, and that's and that's what you're uh, what you're talking about. So people have been challenging this actually there's a also long history of that people working uh, and child personality actually have been challenging this since the beginning really I mean since the you know at least the 70s and 80s you find the first critics Um, so let me (laughs) If I have to summarize the, the kind of the state of things right now, I would say that uh, there is evidence that children do respond to parents uh, quite a bit, especially in the early years. And when you look at the twin studies, if you've talked to Nicole uh, Barbara, she's she's published on that. The, the behavior genetic studies on, on infants and young children actually don't find a strong heritable component. Uh, but that seems to increase across the lifetime. The, so it, it really looks like as children uh, grow up, especially starting from middle childhood and then adolescence and adulthood, uh, the connection between the early attachment and the parent's behavior and the, the actual attachment behaviors becomes uh, less closely tied to the to the original patterns of interaction and possibly more guided by other factors that come online. And I've, I've suggested, I've done some work on sex differences uh, which you start to see in anxious versus avoidant uh, attachment uh, styles. And I've argued that um, well, this, you start to see those differences appearing in middle childhood and I've suggested that some hormonal transitions that you have in middle childhood may actually be responsible. So, um, or partly responsible for that. So anyways, um, I think Bobby was probably mostly right about infants and early childhood, although you still have some gaps. So it's not entirely so, we, we can't completely predict the children's attachment through the parents' behavior. And people have tried, you know, and, and I think it's, a, it's actually a, a very nice area of research. Initially people were focused on, on um, uh, sensitivity, so whether parents respond to the stress in the child in a way that's kind of, uh, um, let's say, contingent, so, you know, matches the child's demand and it's uh, relatively quick. And you can explain a bit of attachment security with that, but not too much. So you have this gap, it's called the transmission gap. So the idea that, you know, you, the parents' uh, representations can predict the child's behavior, uh, but what is in the parent's behavior that mediates that? and Sensitivity does a little bit, but it's not everything. Then people have looked at more, um, uh, let's drift a bit toward theory of mind in the parents, whether the parents has a conception of the child that's uh, um, mindful of the child, children's state and, and and mental states and so forth, and that seems to add a little bit of prediction power. But you know, we, we can we still can't explain the transmission. So it's, and some people have started saying, okay, maybe you know, it's not the behavior; it could be some genetic factors. Um, and that's probably that's probably uh, that's probably true. Although again, you don't see that very strongly in the twin studies. Mm-hmm. Part of the you know, uh, so I think it's reasonable to think that, and that links to something we maybe you want to talk about: this idea of a an ontogenetic adaptation. So this idea that uh, you know, uh, adaptive mechanisms and traits uh, can be designed to have a, a shelf life. Uh, not everything has to be adaptive all the time. So some patterns of behavior that you see in children may actually be adaptive for a relatively short time, and then uh, you know they disappear or are replaced or or recycled into different functions that children grow up. Um, you know, one, one example is reflexes. Uh, children have also, you know, babies have all sorts of reflexes, uh, sucking reflexes, and they and then you you lose them, and you know. That's fine, you know, it doesn't make them less adaptive, but uh, it's just the, the, um, the function of the adaptation is limited to a certain stage in the, in the life of the, of the organism. And so for attachment, uh, the general view in the field is that the attachment system is active. That's actually the, the, the phrase, the catchphrase is uh, from the cradle to the grave it's powerfully online since very early on. And then it's something that you have for the, for the rest of your life. And initially it's uh, directed to your parents or caregivers. And then maybe it's directed to, uh, think, you know, important, like close relationship, like best friends or, and then it becomes uh, romantic partners and so on. So, but it's the same thing, doing similar things across the lifespan. And even if that is true, I think there's, there's a good, you know, I think it's, it's true, as far as it goes, it doesn't mean that the system has to work in the exact same way from the crowd to the grade, uh, and if the, if the cost and benefits and the goals change across the lifespan, uh, you would expect selection to design the system to have, you know, behave in a certain way early on and maybe then switch gears and, and behave in different ways. For example, just uh, to, to be, uh, it makes sense that a child would respond closely to the behavior of the parents, so that doesn't seem <laughs> bizarre to me right the fact that children would be because they really need the parents to to um, to be as available as possible but without um, uh, mismanaging the relationship so you could think that babies would be attuned to respond to their parents in a pretty close way in terms of attachment behaviors Um, but as children become more autonomous right? So they're not completely dependent on parents. They can protect themselves to some extent, they can move around, they start to have other social relationships. Um, There's actually less of a rationale for being so closely tied to your specific parents' behavior. And then when you move to romantic partners, well, you have all sorts of other problems that you you have to manage. And so the idea that whatever your parents did to you or, or the kind of relationship you had with your parents are the template for for dealing with your romantic partners, uh, I mean, I'm not saying yes or no, cause they're, but, uh, the idea that they would track the, the parents behavior so closely, um, it starts to make a bit less sense. So why, why would that be useful? Uh, and Bobby really wasn't so much, I mean, he had a really good theory of, of children and as the survival function of attachment. He didn't really develop a, a, a functional theory of attachment in couple relationships. Because then you have to, you know, it intersect with mating. Uh, and, you know, a different set of problems and, and cost and benefits come online. So that's my, that's my argument. So, and, and you, you would think that that would be reflected in, for example, the role of, uh, let's say, genetics or hormonal factors across the lifespan. So I've been very rambling in this but I have an entire, you know, line of work on attachment, so I tend, to, uh, I tend to get excited about it. Uh, so to answer your question in a, in a compact way, I would say, yes, I mean, there are reasons to challenge a pure environmental account of attachment. Um, the newer longitudinal studies, because now, you know, and one thing is, a you know, longitudinal study, it just took forever to, to run them. So you can't really fault people, say in the 80s and, and early 90s, uh, assuming that what you see in children across just a few years will just keep happening with, with adults. We just didn't have the data. And we actually, there, there were a few long, you know, long-run longitudinal studies and they took like about 20 years to complete. And when those started to get published, people were surprised because the, the connection between early attachment and later attachment seemed to be uh, much weaker than people were expecting. And you saw much more change and, and interesting dynamics over time than people were assuming based on Bobby's mm-hmm. ideas and, and what happens in, in young kids. Uh, plus the other problem is you, to, to measure attachment, you have to use completely different methods, you know, with babies, with infants, with children, with older children, with, you know, adults. And so there's actually a debate about whether you're actually measuring the same thing. Because you might argue, for example, people in a certain tradition of attachment would say that questionnaires really don't um don't measure attachment in any deeper sense and so um are we measuring the same thing when we see changes over time is it because the, the behavior actually changes or we're just measuring different things mm-hmm. and that's actually not incredibly hard to <laughs> it's very hard question to to answer because you just can't use the same methods and people have tried in different ways but um so it's still an open question but it's fascinating and i think you know i should think it's a big opportunity for mm-hmm. for attachment theory to kind of engage with these problems and including behavior genetics, which is, um, yeah, it's a, it's a challenge for most areas of psychology, really. Uh, and I'm big advocate of uh, facing that head on and, and just uh, trying to make sense of that, uh, all those findings. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So I guess we could say that at least at the moment, <laughs> it's still very complicated and we don't have a definite answer yet. I don't think we have a
1: definite answer uh
0: but we definitely have you know
1: more reasons to explore more broadly mm-hmm. now that we have for example i was mentioning the longitudinal studies I mean there's quite a bit of longitudinal evidence right now and you can see very clearly that uh, early attachment patterns there's a little bit of it that maybe transfer and predicts later on but uh it's it's fairly weak at least in some cases and then there are some changes over time that seem to be uh regularities so children who are disorganized uh, early on so you have this kind of inconsistent behaviors and this kind of the slightly dissociative uh, behaviors uh, they tend to form uh, more dismissing and avoidant attachments as, as they go on and what's going on there? I mean again we have the descriptive data we have some um, let's say psychological models of how this happens in terms of how representations maybe change and get reorganized uh, we don't have a good uh, functional theory of what's going on. Um, and, and, and again, e, to the extent that attachment theory kind of reconnects with an evolutionary uh, approach to behavior, I think there's also progress to be made.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. But uh, enough,
1: and... <laughs> enough of attachment theory.
0: Yeah, let's now move <laughs> That's on another to another interview. topic. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, in the broader context, of uh, evolutionary psychopathology, uh, how do you include knowledge coming from behavioral genetics and Mm -hmm. uh, differential susceptibility to, for example, mental disorders Mm -hmm. in in this picture?
1: Okay. Um, Can you... Be a bit more specific. What do you
0: Uh, have? uh, Well, I I mean, because we were just talking about mm. developmental processes, and uh, I I mean theories associated with development, Mm -hmm. like attachment theory. Uh, But when we get specifically into disciplines like behavioral genetics, Mm -hmm. then uh, many times because we are able to know the heritability of certain traits or Mm -hmm. uh, how heritable certain mental conditions. Conditions are, then, um, I mean, sometimes I get the feeling that uh, in behavioral genetics, uh, thing, uh, things mm-hmm. seem to be a little bit more innate than when we talk about uh, developmental approaches mm-hmm. more broadly, I guess. Right,
1: right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I, so it's a challenge that, I, I mean, I see three players here um and so you have the uh you have the behavior genetic uh, approach um you have the uh, the evolutionary theory so, this is, so you can study the the genetics of the of some traits or behaviors that doesn't tell you much about the function so it's really about you know mostly about just measurement and uh you know in, in a simple version you can try to parse Variants into you know uh, whatever additive genetics versus different types of environmental sources, uh, and then you have the you know theories about what what is the behavior doing why it's there what are the functions what are the costs and benefits, um, and for a long time there's been a just a big gap in between, um, and I you know uh, plumbings I think plumbings you know kind of famous textbook of um, of behavior genetics used to have I think I don't know like two pages on on evolution uh, and most you know evolutionary psychology textbooks actually don't even have that so you, know, <laughs> you have maybe a footnote or a little paragraph on on behavior genetics so there's there's been a disconnect for a number of reasons we we don't have to uh, to talk about but uh, which means that uh, you <laughs> So, it's useful to constrain evolutionary ideas about a trait uh, with some notions about the genetics of the trait. It's also true that uh, the kind of, say, heritability statistics, these kind of very broad level descriptions, are not incredibly useful in, in. you know, in telling you something about the function of the trait or whether a certain evolutionary hypothesis is likely to, to be uh, more, or less, more or less correct. So just, you know, um, then, I mean, you can, you, you need to look a bit deeper. For example, in patterns of, say, additive versus non-additive genetic variation. So uh, whether uh, that would be basically, uh, let me say, it. how do you say this in a simple way? Um, so additive genetic variation would be basically uh, your genetic, uh, the the alleles that contribute to a certain trait just uh, add up, which means that uh, if the trait is mostly under additive influence, the uh, children will resemble their parents on average. And non-additive means that uh, it really depends on the, to some extent, on the interaction between different types of alleles and so forth. So it's really more about the specific combination that you have. So you, you might still have a trait that's under strong genetic control, but your children will not resemble you because they, they have different combination of so That would be the difference. And, and the proportion of those two sources of genetic influences actually can tell you something about the selection on the trait. Uh, so whether a trait has been, say, under strong directional selection, or there's been some other, other kind of pattern. And now things are getting more interesting, though, because you can start mapping the you know you start mapping the genes at a higher resolution, and for example, for centrate now you can start weighing the uh, the role of mutations versus uh, or rare variants versus common variants uh, versus let's say mutations that are probably deleterious uh, versus um, other types of alleles that are. Maybe functional, or or maybe they have some kind of custom benefits depending on context. So now it's becoming so, and, and you start to see people uh, looking at GWAS data with an evolutionary lens. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it starting now. There's been a disconnect between uh, evolutionary psychology, let's say, and behavioral genetics. Uh, part of that was probably unnecessary, uh, not not particularly, <laughs> you know, useful thing. At the same time, uh, you know. Oh, on the other hand, you probably didn't have, uh, you know, the genetics was not fine-grained enough to to uh, to draw really interesting connections or, or to be very informative about evolution. And now people are starting to do that and now it, things are getting uh, really exciting. Because you can look at traits and, for example, uh, get evidence of whether the trait has been under, say, mainly a negative selection. Uh, like for for uh, a lot of alleles that contribute to schizophrenia risk, um, that's what in, you know it looks. There, there seems to be mostly negative selection on that. Uh, on the other hand, well, there's still one still has to be mindful of the limits of uh, of, of genetics. And even with you know with the GWAS studies and even with the you know models that we have that are pretty pretty sophisticated. For example, one thing that it's almost You know, very hard or or even impossible to do uh, right now is to detect uh, balancing selection Mm -hmm. in the genome. You can do it when it's been, uh, so balancing selection would be that, you know, alleles that contribute to a trait uh, are under basically variable selection depending on time. So let's say, you know, maybe it depends on just imagine something that gives you some genes that affect your uh, fat deposition. Um, and maybe depending on whether there's a lot of food or or people are starving, you know, they may become more or less, so over time it changes over, you know, different places, um, or it could depend on on frequency, you know, if if a lot of people that, you know, for psychopathy has been uh, described in this way, right? You know, you can have, psychopaths can be be successful when When they're among people who are not psychopaths. If everyone becomes a psychopath, then they start having serious trouble. So it's kind of frequency dependent hypothesis about some, uh, even some, uh, let's say, traits linked to mental disorders. Um, Okay, now for personality, um, well, you know, many uh, evolutionary psychologists who have dealt with personality have proposed uh, balancing selection hypothesis essentially. The idea that extroversion can be, you know, is make sure of custom benefits, and so depending on context, depending on who you are, depending on where you are, can give you a net advantage or not. Or maybe it can be, be a bit random, you know, it's kind of a high-risk uh, uh, kind of strategy. So uh, if that's the case, you expect a certain amount of balancing selection on the alleles contribute to a trade. Now, the problem is uh, we can detect it in most realistic scenarios. You can only detect it in, in genomic data if there's been very strong very stable balancing selection for basically millions of years on the same alleles and you have this kind of Ill. so that you can detect uh it's kind of background you know let's say uh balancing selection where you have you know slight shifts in frequencies of many genes at the same time and then it goes the other way uh we, we really can not pinpoint that at the moment so it's interesting because the the genetic data are giving you a lot of information but it, it's biased information because there are some patterns you can detect and some patterns you basically can't detect. And uh, there's a danger of making assumptions based on, on what you can find, right? It's kind of looking under the, the lamppost. Um, so, anyways, uh, I think it's, it's really exciting. Uh, I think, uh, well, there's some people, for, Brendan Zitch would be one person. He's doing a, a lot of work that's evolutionary informed, but it, it's, uh, it's in behavioral genetics. It's work between studies, working with GWAS now. So, it's uh, extremely uh, fascinating work um it so this kind of one another nice development that's pretty recent is to use GWAS uh the GWAS data to um to map genetic correlations between traits and now you can look at the genetic correlations between say different disorders but not just that you can look at correlations between disorders and say personality traits or developmental patterns like you know for things like for example, let's say puberty, you know, puberty timing or uh, reproductive uh, events, you know, whether people have more or more, tend to have more or fewer children, uh, and whether that's genetically associated with some personality traits, with some behavioral traits, with risk for certain disorders. So that that information is is incredibly valuable. And I try to use as much as I could in, in writing the book. Um, for development, now that's the... I'm circling back to your original question. So now this is where things get really tricky, because, I mean, that's you know not not a, a secret anymore. But a lot of the developmental theories we have uh, are don't match very well with the with the behavior genetics, uh, with because the, the factors that psychologists have emphasized, like you know family factors uh be socioeconomic status, or or levels of stress within the family, or you know uh, parenting styles, or chaos, or or uh, I mean, those factors don't seem to act in a systematic way on on behavior, at least in the long run. Yeah. So you know, so what's going on? <laughs> and, 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 so it's actually you know that is the big that is a really big question. I try to do a Bit of work on it, but uh, the thing is, uh, right now there's a handful of people really who have a uh, kind of conversant with with the genetics, but also have a developmental uh, focus. So that there's just a handful of people who do that, and most you know behavior genetics is mostly concerned with the does I mean there's some developmental work, but it's not necessarily linked to the developmental models. A lot of developmentalists are more or less hoping that it will go away <laughs> to some extent. Uh, I'm kidding a little bit. But no, let's say the field hasn't been eager to come to terms with behavior genetics. So a lot of people are kind of ignoring it and not, not really dealing with the, with the implications. And when you actually try to square them, uh, it's, it's really hard. And there, there are not many options. So one option is that actually behavior doesn't, you know, it's not that plastic. I mean, that's that's one one answer. Actually, you know, things don't matter. <laughs> uh, family, you no, know, we, we it seems that you know experiencing the family are, are impactful and, and shape your behavior, but actually the, they don't. Uh, again, at least in the long run, and so plasticity is is not as you know that. Okay, it's it's possible, I guess. But also, I mean. You don't want to exaggerate that. For some traits, actually, there is some some evidence of shared, fa- like family level effects. For example, antisocial behaviors, aggression. Uh, there's actually those traits actually have a bit more um, shared environmental uh, determination than others. So it's not this uniform, but by and large, uh, so that doesn't sit too well with the fact that in biology you can actually do experimental work. What you can't do in humans, right? Actually, take you know offspring where you have some genetic information that actually put them in different situations experimentally, and, see, and you, you see a lot of evidence for plasticity. So I find it, you know, it would be, I think, a really deeply puzzling finding that humans of all species uh, have lost their plasticity to the environment somehow. You know, you find plasticity in fish, in, in whatever, rats. They uh, you know, seem to be sensitive to some specific factors like predators or parental care and, and, and uh, but but humans no they don 't so we, we lost and that seems really bizarre because we have you know it 's not like we we are isolated you know i don't it would be really strange so how do you square that so the other option is that uh the this lack of systematic effects of the of the let's say the family environment or the shared environment um, reflects some more complicated developmental patterns. Differential, you, you mentioned differential susceptibility, that's that's actually one possible way out of the conundrum and the idea that children actually are different in the sense that some of them respond to some factors, some of them respond less than others, some children maybe are, are for kind of mysterious right now but uh, actually kind of insensitive to what happens in, in in the social environment say and developing a very kind of canalized uh, Way, um, it's so that part of the story is still not enough to to account for all the findings. But it's a possibility. However, that makes your models way more complicated because now you're looking for interactions and not just simple effects. Uh, and um, so the evidence. So there is some evidence. It's not very good overall. For and not for anyone's fault. It's just because you know the uh, you would really need huge sample sizes and uh, we, we, we have you no know, we don't have those dates so some people now I know that there's uh, some researchers are starting to look into that with, with a big you know, genetic uh, study so we might have some you know useful information in a while but right now so the theory is interesting this idea that you have different susceptibility and that is a trait uh, in itself um, it's uh, everything would work even better If susceptibility was itself a plastic trait. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So if, you know, you're not, because you know, one option is that you're just born sensitive or born insensitive, some genetic factor that determines whether you're going to be open to the environment or or canalized. (laughs) it's possible, I mean, some people have suggested, Jay Basky and others, that actually some things like say prenatal exposure to stress hormones or, or, or like early stress, early exposure to stress may actually tune your sensitivity to the environment later on. Now, if that's the case, <laughs> you can make it work in the sense that you can actually see why what I did just run some simulations. And what you do is you get some end results that are compatible with the twin studies. So it's, it's exciting in the sense that, yeah, okay, no. <laughs> at least there, there's a scenario in which there is sensitivity to the environment, it's moderated by some personal factor, and what you get by just kind of simulating this forward is compatible with, with the twin studies. So we're not ending up in, in a place that's, you know, implausible, we have to start over again. At the same time, why would evolution do that? That's the thing. So why why would it be adaptive to tune your, sensitivity to the to the environment based on your earliest experiences or some exposure to other factors and there's I don't think there's any formal theory there there's no mathematical model showing you uh, why that would be the case you can, you can have some hunches uh, but you know people haven't really worked on, on the question so there I think so uh, in terms of working on the models of development in a way that's more formal so you, you really need to move beyond like generic, uh, you know ideas and and try to verify the evolutionary logic of of the hypothesis you're proposing uh, and then making sure that what you get is actually compatible with the genetic findings uh, that's the way forward, and uh, very few people are trying to to go that way but people more people will because it's becoming more you know more and more clear that just measuring you know family factors or environmental factors and linking that to behavior, I mean, it's not enough. There's, you know, genetic confounds, and when you start controlling for genetics, you know, some of them kind of go away. Um, sometimes, you know, it, it, it's very complicated, of course, but, uh, but I think it's, um, in a way, it's very hard to tackle, uh, but it's, very ex- it's even more exciting to, to go in, in the next future, I guess, yeah. Yeah. and for, And for psychopathology, that's that's even more, more important because, um, let's say, yeah, okay, we will talk about this
0: later. Okay, <laughs> <It's been laughs> okay so uh, could you tell us now about the fast, slow, defense mm-hmm. model right. that you talk about in your book? And then I think that you also talk about the three different types of... Um, personality and then you also associate them with different types of personality disorders there are the F types the S types and, right, and right, the B right. types <laughs> so I, I mean could you tell us about right
1: that? okay we are trying to to keep that reasonably reasonably short so um okay so to so my proposal is that so and we're moving towards psychopathology more uh, more uh, narrowly now. Uh, my proposal is that the first thing you need to, uh, to build an evolutionary psychopathology that's, you know, useful and, and makes progress, is to have a uh, reasonably grounded model of the mind and behavior. And that means, uh, to me, at, at least some ideas about what development is for, what are the main, you know, steps and, and phases in development and what are the functions what are the, the biological functions at each stage, uh, you need some, uh, some notion of motivation. I mean, you can't really you know, detach, try to, to build a the theory of mental disorders separated from, from motivation. You really need a theory of motivation. And I think my, way, you know, my, my kind of uh, bet is that you need a rich theory of motivation. You don't need a theory with just a you know a handful of you know uh, but some that's also the kind of the a lot of mainstream research of motivation if you if you're familiar with that uh, tends to be very conservative so you try to find like what two or three big motivational themes and build everything around those so I think a biological approach really uh, pushes you to a, a much richer model in which you have you know probably dozens of, of kind of relatively independent or or interdependent system that mediate motivations for all sorts of things from attachment to mating to uh uh, status dynamics to affiliation you know cooperating with others acquiring resources you know exploration and and curiosity and so forth so you really uh, you you need a a theory of motivation that at least starts to feel as rich and and nuanced as actual kind of real life (laughs) real life behavior so when you have that you still don't have a good classification. You you can uh, you can use those uh, kind of background, this background model to uh, understand individual disorders. Mm-hmm. So when you look at, say, I mean, let's an easy one, say social anxiety. Uh, okay, you know everything about social anxiety disorder tells you that it's something that has to do with uh, with status dynamics. And so, you know uh, anxiety and shame. You know if you uh, if you look at the developmental course of this disorder you see there's you know experiences of rejection and and kind of loss of status in in the peer group uh you have its kind of characteristic trajectories that involve depression and then social retirement and so forth and the so you can you know you can start making some some progress you can you know ground the uh theory of the disorder is something functional uh you can start making sense of the developmental patterns, why these disorders start peaking, uh, for example, in, uh, in middle childhood, actually, and then, and then adolescence. This is when <laughs> these this kind of status competition systems actually get online and become powerful driving forces. So you can, you know, pinpoint where the vulnerability uh, lies, uh, you can link it to some personality traits, and, uh, and so on and so forth. But then you, you have, you know, one symptom or one disorder. And the thing, you know, one of the problems with the DSM uh, approach, where you try to, you know, describe each disorder as narrowly and, and cleanly as you can, okay? Whether you can, that's a different question, but that's what you're trying to do. You define a precise definition that has kind of reliability and, 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 and then you end up with a with big list of disorders. Uh, problem is, <laughs> few people get one disorder. Most people get, you know, know, multiple diagnoses are the rule, not the exception, and so um, what you you really have to account for is not individual disorders and their individual special logic, but the fact that disorders cluster together, they share uh, developmental patterns, they share uh, trajectories. So sometimes you, you know, you have a, for example, a kind of back and forth between aggression and anxiety in, in, across childhood in the development of some disorders. Um, they, um, they tend to cluster in families. So they share, and you, now that you can look at this, for example, the GWAS and look at the genetic correlations, I mean, there's no, there's no boundary. You know, I don't know, if, you, if you're following the literature, you never see a publication in which you say, okay, we looked at GWAS for this disorder, and hey, it doesn't correlate with any other. <laughs> so there's, all, there's always a, a network of correlations with, with a lot of other things. So uh, that is what the kind of DSM style uh, approach f- fails at. You know, you have basically end up describing individual disorders and then to talk about comorbidity and then trace the statistics of the comorbidity but you have, don't have a theory of why the comorbidity goes the, the way it goes. So my, I think one of the and one of the things that's doable at this point is to try to use your model of the mind and behavior to uh, to explain comorbidities and, and correlations between disorders and that is a, a way to make progress concerning taxonomy. Mm-hmm. If you find actually in, say broad patterns and broad dimensions those can be uh, an alternative way of looking at disorders. That's um, okay. You can also do that with with factor analysis. This is what a lot of people are doing with transdiagnostic approaches, where you you know just take big inventories of symptoms, big samples, try to factor analyze and find the big dimensions like internalizing, externalizing. Uh, thought disorder, psychotic symptoms. And and uh, you try to map them. You also realize that they tend to cluster in what There, there seems to be a kind of a general factor there. So people, some people seem to be predisposed to pretty much any kind of disorder. Uh, so there's some general vulnerability too we can talk about, it's very interesting. It's been exploding over the last maybe five or six years. Um, but that's again, purely empirical. And you, you ground it to some extent that approach into uh, a theory of emotions, where you have, for example, internalizing, what are internalizing symptoms, where well, they're connected to negative emotionality, or what are uh, externalizing symptoms, where you can link them to a dimension of, say, disinhibition and, and uh, okay, there's still not a functional theory. <laughs> You know what what is this innovation what is it doing in, in, in relation with other traits you know so that's what i'm saying so you can try to, to recover this this kind of uh, more realistic taxonomy from a purely empirical standpoint but you still don't have a functional explanation so that's what you know the challenge and the missing link between a general theory of behavior and uh, this kind of taxonomy uh, is some kind of principle that helps you organize different traits cognitive traits, behavioural traits, personality traits um, in a way that explains the, uh, the, the co-variation between traits, mm-hmm. the way traits, So not just, the, not just the individual traits, individual disorders, individual symptoms, but try to make sense of why some people are in a certain way and other people are in, a, are in a different way. And the way, so uh, you can do it in, the, in, in a number of ways. And the um, the approach I've taken in this book and other work I'm doing is using uh, um, some life history concepts as a a heuristic to do that and we uh, probably don't want to go too deep into that but uh, it's not, it's not a, (laughs) so a lot of people in evolutionary psychology I think there's this uh, kind of life history approaches have become extremely popular, extremely popular, um, as a possible account for uh, personality, Right, personality differences uh, that kind of goes beyond the, the just the big five or some kind of descriptive account and gives you like a, a reason and a functional story for why some people tend to be in a certain way or, or another. Uh, in development, it's a developmental evolutionary psychology. So it's work by Jay Besky, Bruce Ellis, you know, myself, uh, been proposing that the way to understand the role of some uh fact experiences and early factors on development is to link them to regulation of life history strategies so that's you know it's a very promising heuristic the problem is there's a a huge gaps in the theory Mm -hmm. and i so and the field is actually going through a crisis right now so as we speak (laughs) basically uh, because um well let's say um so this idea that you can Okay, if you look at species, I'll make it, uh, you know, compact. So if you look at different species and different life history traits, like, you know, age reproduction, uh, the, um, so, um, yeah, lifespan, the number of offspring, uh, things like that, that define kind of the, the investments uh, across the lifespan, uh, you find very, very robust patterns. And one of these patterns is this kind of fast versus slow uh, pattern of covariation. And usually it, it's... Lots of it is small animals tend to have faster life history. So, you know, uh, h- higher mortality, uh, you know, they mature early, they die sooner. They have tend to have more offspring, uh, not do a lot of investment in each offspring. And then as, you know, you get to bigger animals, they they get to a slower. But even if you control for body size, you still find this, uh, this dimension. So it, it's probably, you know, also something else, not just size, uh, probably reflecting some, you know, deep, Conflict between allocation to different functions uh, and, and trade-offs between, say, survival at different stages of life and so forth. Okay, uh, now that's kind of exciting because you can think, all right, we have this powerful pattern. Um, it, What it does is to, it's not just explaining one thing, let's say, reproduction timing. No, it links reproduction timing to all sorts of other other interesting traces, implication, and of course, I mean, reproduction timing, it doesn't happen, you know, when you reproduce is not just happening to you because you, 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 you divide yourself at some point, right? <laughs> for, for, for species, who, so it means you need to, you know, uh, well, uh, engage in mating behaviors and find a partner and then actually raise your children, make investments. So uh, all these, you know, main life history uh, outcomes, like again, survival, uh, reproduction, investment in the offspring, they are mediated by behaviors. They are also mediated by uh, physiology, you know, whether you're, you're uh, you know, sex hormones uh, versus, you know, the, the regulation of stress hormones, how you regulate the uh, the immune system, for example, to put, say, less energy in maintaining your body for the long term versus versus switching mm-hmm. some of the energy to reproduction and so forth. So potentially that, you know, and wh- that's where the excitement lies if you actually could apply some of these insights to individual differences, maybe you can explain not just, you know, one trait or a little cluster of traits, but broad patterns in, you know, personality, behavior, and also physiology maybe, uh, and developmental patterns, like say maturation timing, puberty timing, and, and things like that. And okay, that's the problem is, so and there's some data that, uh, that definitely seem to, you know, fit with this pattern. Uh, so, It seems to make sense, and people are getting, you know, really excited about that. Uh, And now people are there's been mounting criticism for a number of reasons. And one is that you can't actually; it's not trivial to go from the the level of variation across species, and just the idea you can apply this to individual differences is actually much trickier than (laughs) than people have hoped for. Uh, and we don't have actually a lot of good models, like or almost any good model of that kind of, you know, transition. So um, mm-hmm. it's been um, a bit of a shot in the dark. Uh, and then for some people have been, I think, over applying the concept. Uh, so for example, you know, it's tempting when you have this kind of, you no. Know, attachment theory has done that too. I mean, if you read the attachment literature, so the idea is attachment is a specialized system that deals with, you know, initially caregiver availability and this kind of you know regulating close relationships and then somehow the literature now deals with everything like you no, know, <laughs> leadership uh, you know and uh, whatever I don't even you know <laughs> sports uh, this and that you know all from so it, it's easy to kind of over apply concepts that seem to be uh, powerful. So life history, this life history approach people have applied it to all sorts of traits and sometimes without a very clear rationale or, or, or very clear uh, you know compelling uh, evidence. So you know the field has moved ahead of itself, so I, I kind of find myself in a very strange spot because I'm, I'm a proponent of this kind of life history uh, approach as a, as a heuristic. So something that can be useful to organize uh, kind of uh, knowledge of, and make hypotheses about individual differences. But at the same time, I, I'm, I'm a critic of the field because <laughs> <They> I actually do, <laughs> so I'm in, in, in a weird spot, uh, spot in a sense, um, and so um, writing this book has been an interesting experience. I, okay, so when you um, apply this to individual differences, my approach has been uh, twofold. On the one hand, I tried to restrict, so uh, okay, it's basically i i am assuming that something like a fast versus slow continuum of histories can be applied meaningfully to to individual differences and i uh, i actually have a paper it's uh, it's in a preprint right now if people want to you know go deeper in detail you know I, I basically try to tell the story from the bottom up so start from scratch and and there are gaps so it's not you know it's not a hard consequence of some mathematical model or some, some formal model, so you know, it's, it's basically a heuristic that may or may not, may or may not work. Um, I try to restrict the, the application of this fast versus low kind of uh, dichotomy to a set of traits that seem to actually, you know, relate to life history outcomes, in a, in a pretty straightforward way. For example, I would see impulsivity and risk-taking as personality variables. Uh, I think they are a good candidate in the sense, and I I see them as kind of at the center of my network of traits because, you know, the the consequences are match. The theory, in terms of earlier, you know, if you're more impulsive or risk-taking, you are likely to uh, reproduce earlier if you do, uh, is people with these traits tend to be less investing in, in parental care and more, you know, kind of say distracted by other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, they tend to be a bit more promiscuous in their in their mating patterns, so they put more effort in mating uh, mm-hmm. at the expense maybe of long term relationships and and, and parenting. Um, you tend you, you know you tend to die sooner, so there's higher mortality for all sorts of reasons. So that kind of trait, I think, you know, you can make a, a, a solid case that it relates in meaningful way to hardcore kind of life history outcomes, like mating, parenting, mortality, and, and so forth. Um, and then, um, okay, that's been one part of the strategy. Um, and the idea here is that, uh, linking to psychopathology, here's the, uh, the idea. You, you can basically, have, you can look at individual variation in all sorts of ways and from all sorts of, of dimensions. Um, this heuristic, is to consider one dimension of variation that has a functional, kind of a functional meaning. This idea that uh, there are trade-offs between, again, mostly I think mating and parenting for humans. Uh, It links to some extent to early reproduction versus later reproduction, but partly because, you know, later reproduction is usually a good thing if you want to invest heavily in, you know, in your kids. Um, And then, there's a quality versus quantity, it's, it's all linked together. So, and I think mating parenting is kind of the main thing for humans, the way, you know, our mating and reproduction system works. And so that, I think, is, is an interesting way to account for uh, some dimensions of variation, the cluster around impulsivity, risk-taking, and a tendency to uh, be, let's say, more, um, let's say, uh, more restricted in, in, you know, let's say, sexually restricted and more kind of socially cooperative versus more unrestricted and, and less cooperative or more, say, exploitative in, in a number of ways. So that's one dimension. Does it explain everything about personality? Absolutely not. <laughs> so it leaves out a lot of detail, a lot of interesting detail. Uh, but if it works, you have one, you know, one uh, you know, kind of, um, let's say, big picture uh, concept that might actually help you—that's you, uh, you know—you can apply to disorders uh, and see, okay, do they correlate with these traits, and <laughs> and do they cluster in meaningful ways as they correlate with these traits? Uh, and uh, the idea here is to use this this heuristic, really, of a fast versus low-dimensional variation to make sense of. Uh, patterns of covariation and also the, the risk factors. So if that is true, you expect for, for a number of reasons, some environmental, but some genetic. So it's not a completely environmentalist approach that uh, people with like faster, let's say combination of traits so more again, impulsive risk-taking, more exploitative, sexually unrestricted, uh, that will be associated by and large with uh, environments that are more risky and, and dangerous and, and kind of lower quality and so forth and, and vice versa. Uh, So then you can look at disorders and see if that's the case, because some mental disorders actually are are associated with uh, this kind of environment, right? Uh, Chaotic, risky, you know, uh, let's say problematic environments. But then other disorders are not there's some, some, and so most disorders actually tend to usually, you know, bad things go together <laughs> and good things go together, but a, a lot of things, you know, there's some disorders that seem to be exceptions. For example, you know, uh, obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, um, we, which can be, again, so I'm suggesting in this model that uh, it's a good candidate for being at the borderline between an adaptive strategy and maybe, and maybe a maybe disorder. So you could see that as what you were suggesting, like a tale of a, uh, of a distribution where you know you have kind of this constraint and conscientiousness uh, and you can take it sometimes to a pretty extreme level and it's kind of still work for you can, can still work as a as that strategy. Of course then in the, you can't have too much. so it's probably at the borderline. so it's not like oh everything you know OCPD is always an adaptive strategy. I wouldn't say that. I would say you know, it's a good candidate for being something at the at the borderline uh, there. Uh, now OCPD is interesting because it can be very debilitating for people you know in, in terms of social relationships people can be you know ex- extremely uh, kind of from a from the perspective of well-being and mental health can be very distressing and very damaging but at the same time um, it doesn't go together with, all, with with a lot of bad stuff so <laughs> it's not strongly associated with say early uh, stress or early experiences of abuse and neglect uh, Actually, people. I think there's some evidence people with ASD tend to actually, uh, like, um, uh, say, earn a bit more on average. So it's not, you know, you can be actually promoting some some aspects of, you know, uh, success in in some ways. So that disorder doesn't really fit. What happens with most disorder? Autism is is similar in the sense that there's again. Uh, probably a lot of heterogeneity in there, but there's some, you know, very inconsistent evidence about the, the epidemiological correlates. So that's, um, so what I think is the, the, the potential of this approach is that it's give you a, a map of, of personality. It's a partial map. It's not a map of all personality. Just one thing, you know, it's kind of consider this fast versus slow as an initial, like the first thing you, you look at. Uh, so you can make sense of clusters of disorders. Uh, if it works, uh, and I argue that, you know, promising, uh, you can make sense of the developmental patterns of some disorders, whether they arise, let's say early in childhood or maybe in adolescence and correlations with risk factors. And then, which is also uh, you know, something that kind of the holy grail of psychopathology is, we, everyone knows that a lot of the, the diagnoses are uh, very mixed. So autism is, is probably not one thing. The, the genetics, is, I think, it's pretty clear. There's it's not one thing. There's you know all sorts of um, different conditions in there. Uh, schizophrenia is probably not one thing. Um, let's what are the, the big uh, the big players here? Well, oh, depression is probably not one thing. I mean, it's it's probably one thing in a sense, but it, it, you know it can be. Uh, for example, there's some evidence that uh, there's can something that we could describe as depression can be triggered by uh, the immune system. As part of an inflammatory response, for example, um, uh, and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of um, heterogeneity within the diagnostic categories we have. Now you can try to sort it out in, in a number of ways, but no, potentially you could try to slice it in in all sorts of ways. You know, empirically, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Uh, gen- this actually you no. Know, you know, genetics eventually will, I think, clarify some of those things, but right now, it, you know, it's, it's limiting actually, because in the, in the bigger studies, you need the biggest samples you can find, essentially, for the GWAS. And so some studies of, for example, autism or schizophrenia, they actually don't make fine distinctions between, uh, say, subtypes or... So what you get from the, from the study is something that maybe re- refers to different things, which are squeezed together. And so even how we interpret some of the genetic evidence is a bit, you know, you have to be careful, because it's maybe um, it's not one thing. So you're not looking at one one condition or one specific. Okay, so if this initial kind of fast low classification system works, uh, it might give you leverage to distinguish between types of disorders uh, within the same, within the same category. And the way you do it, you have, you know, first thing you have to put down some kind of reasonable list of traits that fit with these, uh, you know, broad patterns, and again, I, I talked about, you know, impulsivity, risk-taking. There's uh, things like again, uh, you can map it to some extent on broad personality traits like agreeableness and conscientiousness, uh, stuff like that, um, and then try to uh, use these as um, <laughs> a tool to look into disorders and see if you can clip them right, in a, in a way that makes functional sense using these concepts. And sometimes it works, sometimes it's a partial, uh, I think, success. For example, my, again, my proposal, which is provisional, almost everything about this book uh, is, is is very provisional in a sense, but uh, for example, I'm proposing that if you look at autism as a, as a broad spectrum of conditions, uh, part of it, particularly the, the kind of autism with, you know, a higher IQ, not not uh, like we we'll call high functioning, although they removed that from the from the DSM now. But um, a lot of the, those conditions are again there's a there's a broad range from possibly adaptive to frankly maladaptive. So it's not one thing. Uh, but a major contribution there is some traits that I I'm arguing can be part of a specialized behavioral strategy that fits with the slow. Uh, kind of life history uh, pattern. That's my proposal. However, that's kind of half of the story and then you have a, a completely different subgroup which is mostly driven by, uh, as far as we understand, just by uh, accumulation of deleterious mutations or, or, or new mutations arising that doesn't really has have anything to do with uh, personality variations or pattern or individual differences is just very close to a pure dysfunction. It's just, uh, you know, bad mutation or possibly even other factors like infections or, you know, developmental disturbances just interfere with brain development in a way that that creates some kind of symptoms. And right now they're lumped together. Um, uh, so this is also to say that I don't think the, this fast and slow classification can explain uh, everything. It's not like everything fits neatly in there. I mean, there would be... Uh, okay, so maybe you could make an argument that my, you know, this approach to classification is already kind of uh, slightly, uh, let's say, uh, delusional <laughs> in the sense that it's, a, it's very broad, it's very ambitious, that's what I kind of uh, say. Uh, I, I'm definitely not arguing that you can explain everything about psychopathology with this. I think it gives you leverage to make some broad distinctions between disorders. For example, I'm arguing that uh, you know, well, that's not a new argument. Of course, people have been—I'm not claiming authorship for this. Uh, so for example, connections between, say, psychopathy or narcissism, even borderline personality uh, traits, and faster—you know—clusters of traits that's been, you know, said for for quite a long time. So there's that. I'm arguing that uh, most of what goes in psychosis is, you know, so schizophrenia and bipolar disorder is linked to these constellation of traits, and on the other side. Uh, you have uh, again a certain kind of autism, it's not all of it, (laughs) and then uh, some disorders like OCPD where you have a disorder in which constraints is a very behavior constraints, very strong uh, feature of it, and then I'm suggesting which is kind of interesting because people in doing empirical classification of disorders have struggled with uh, eating disorders. Where do you put them? Where were they? They seem to, you know, they they correlate with everything, so it's kind of very weird. Um, category if you're trying to be a taxonomist is very irritating because they (laughs) they don't they don't fit very well. So uh, I'm I'm building on some work on personality and eating disorders to suggest that you actually have very you know uh, it's a kind of symptom that can arise for very different reasons and uh, in association with very different personality uh, constellations and some of that goes with more you know uh, essentially kind of impulsive uh, eating and the the correlation of this kind of you know it can be again anorexia versus bulimia that's the traditional category it doesn't work very well because a lot of people in a cycle between the two and they change the nature of the symptoms changes over time depending on whether you're trying to control the symptoms or, or or not and so it's it's very unstable so you try to to um to understand you know bulimic symptoms versus anorexic symptom you don't go very far because it's not described, it's describing types of symptoms, but apparently not types of people. Mm-hmm. So of course I mean, it, it can be useful in treatment because I, I you know, that's interesting because I, I, whether a classification that makes sense is also useful in treatment, that depends. So it could be the case that, you know, you want to treat anorexic symptoms in a way, regardless of the personality background. That's, you no. Know, it's quite possible but if you want to, to make a taxonomy that's you know uh, that's reasonable you probably want to split eating disorders into into clusters and so i'm suggesting there's a more kind of impulsive link to uh, traits that are more kind of disinhibited and more uh, you know uh, risky behaviors there's also correlations with uh, externalizing traits like again, conduct disorders or or attention seeking uh, behaviors and then on the other hand you have some people who develop uh, eating disorders but the profile is very different which kind of constrained profile with you know high conscientiousness um, also uh, the motivation for the symptoms may be slightly different and I argue that it's connected with different uh, kind of mating priorities so in one case it might be driven more strongly by uh, I, I'm talking about the onset of the symptoms, so how you get into disorders, more by concern with you know body uh, attractiveness and body shape and in other cases you have this more you know kind of moral really a, a more of a moral uh, <laughs> coloring of it in terms of you know being um, perfect and being so this perfectionist and being perfect and being uh, you know taking also a lot of pride in being able to control yourself and control your instincts and control your hunger, um, and I'm arguing that they they, they really do go uh, in, in different parts of the taxonomy. And um, again, it's not all original. I you know I didn't <laughs> do this work on personality disorders, but it, it's kind of interesting that. Uh, If you look at other approaches to psychopathology like the transdiagnostic dimensional approach eating disorders are a bit of an oddball so they're kind of you know moving one side or the other like tricky uh, to figure out and um partly because that model doesn't have a, a functional theory of why you would expect it and the the functional background i'm proposing is that uh well uh eating disorders are mostly you know very strongly female biased and uh they can arise in connection, I'm not saying they are an adaptive strategy. We will want to talk about that maybe later and realize no, uh, what are disorders <laughs> from an evolutionary perspective? That's actually a very big question, and I think it's important to, to address. But uh, connected somehow to mating, uh, and particularly uh, to uh, you know, so if you're more into say shorter mating or or exactly more promiscuous mating styles, me. Um, some aspects of you know physical attractiveness are, are particularly important and that could be, it can be a very pressing concern from a motivational point of view and that is not you know an automatic pathway to eating disorders but it constitutes a risk factor it's a possible pathway in that uh, in that direction on the other hand uh, i would argue that the um the the kind of eating symptoms associated with a slow end of the of this continuum, uh, have a, a slightly different motivational background. So they have, again, more to do with, you know, constraints and kind of moral display, probably, to the extent that they have connections with mating, it seems to be more of kind of a, the constellation of, of behaviors that go with long-term mating, in terms of, you know, uh, even suppressing fertility to some extent, uh, although that, I'm not saying this is an adaptive, uh, feature but in terms of the uh, of the links to functional things that can happen in people with a slower versus faster constellation of traits I think it actually gives you leverage not just to empirically split them but also to make sense of some connections with say again you know uh, could be developmental trajectories and sexual behavior and, and things that people have been studying but that have not been connecting uh, together um, hopefully I be- began to answer your question but that's this so that's the fast slow uh, that's the fast slow thing uh, and then there's a bunch of disorders that are very prevalent and they don't really fit this taxonomy and I tried initially to fit them in the taxonomy and then I, I gave up essentially I kind of realized it was actually best to, to split them in a, in different dimension and that would be uh, again I, I call them, but it's, it's just a label, the defense activation disorder. Uh, most of that is, is stuff that people would call internalizing disorder. So what what is that? Is depression, anxiety, phobias, um, post-traumatic stress, um, things like that. So the reason for calling that defense activation disorder, I think, which I prefer the label, uh, is that internalizing um, is not a very functional term. So the idea is that it's kind of, you know, um, <laughs> self, self harming, but you, know, you have a problem and it's, it's reflected in your internal states, like again, becoming depressed or anxious or dysphoric. Um, and what people link them to usually is negative emotionality, mm-hmm. which, is, which is correct. I mean, that's obviously true. The point is, what is negative emotionality? And what I'm what I'm taking from uh, well, Randy Nessie has worked a lot on that. Is no kind of major inspiration. But the idea that a lot of negative emotions, you know, uh, can be understood much better from a functional perspective if you think of them as parts of uh, defensive systems, not in the psychoanalytic, you know, uh, meaning of the term necessarily, but in the, in the sense that, uh, for example, disgust is a defense of the organism against, you know, contamination. Um, or or infections. Uh, fear is a defense against, a you know, protection against, you know, various sources of physical danger and you know. shame. Then you can you can extend it to social emotional and shame, and uh, you can think of shame as actually a protective emotion that deals with, you know, social rejection, social judgment, and. Uh, constrains your behavior in a way that will not get you basically kicked out of your group or killed by your uh by a group or something like that so um same for depression i mean there's lots of interesting model depression which did again not very detailed models but in general sense the idea of lowering your mood and lowering your striving for goals and reward and kind of you know down regulating uh the, the the striving and seeking part of behavior uh, can be actually adaptive as, as when you're in, in in a certain set of situation which basically things are not working your behavior is not working you're making things worse by trying to reach your goals It may actually make sense to you know uh, stop basically doing what you're doing kind of re, uh, refocus uh, and then that of course that might get out of hand but uh so these are yet the a lot of negative emo- negative emotions can be reframed as defenses as adaptive defenses um there are different reasons why uh those sh- could go with different types of personality traits and then again it's not it's not very specific that's the reason for taking it out from this fast and slow dichotomy mm-hmm. and treating them as a, as a cluster by itself, because you, you know, again, you can think, you know, if the if the functional story there, in terms of predisposition, and then of course you have specific genetic factors, specific experiences. Uh, that's actually, you know, these disorders are where you have the strongest evidence for a role of individual experiences, mm-hmm. for depression anxiety, and anxiety and 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 so forth. Actually, you can, you know, there's really good evidence that what happens to you in pretty specific ways can actually shape your uh, but there is a predisposition obviously to to uh, this kind of symptom. And if the predisposition is a uh, readiness of your defenses in this specific uh, you know uh, meaning to become activated, in a vigorous way, let's say, and maybe remain activated for longer than usual. So let's say, you know, most people get anxious, uh, some people get anxious and stay anxious. They they have trouble disengaging from, from the anxiety and maybe... So that, so that kind of, let's say, upregulation of defenses, uh, there are reasons to think it could be associated with, uh, with the faster patterns of personality and and behavior, but there are also reasons to think they may be associated with some of the slower, uh, patterns, uh, because, for example, slower, uh, people who are we, what is low in this context. We're talking about people who tend to be, you know, uh, oriented to the long term, not impulsive. So it's kind of mindful, you know, future oriented, uh, risk-avoidant. <laughs> they don't like to take take risk. Uh, you know, very. So it, it, in, in many cases, you have this association with a pro-sociality and and uh, kind of affiliation, and so you're very concerned about what other people are thinking of you. You're you know you're very sensitive about the state of your of your social relationship, your affiliative relationship. So all of those things uh, in this context, it makes sense that you will be sensitive to threats to uh, your long-term welfare. And actually, there you know for example, becoming anxious in in a kind of preventative sense. So. Be, uh, on the other hand, if you actually, you know, are let's say impulsive, risk-seeking, you know, kind of, uh, the, you, your your environment is actually probably full of of trouble, <laughs> and that might, you know, that might contribute to shape the symptoms in some people. So those those traits in some people. But regardless, I mean, you're going to create trouble around yourself. So it actually makes sense that you might be, you know. Ready to detect danger and, and immediate danger so you can expect you know, some so uh, the, the general idea boils down to the the, the, the uh, principle that these um, so disorders that are functionally linked to this upregulation of defenses, uh, again depression, anxiety, phobias, and so forth uh, you're probably don't expect a strong specificity with respect to these other personality traits. Uh, there might be a little correlation on the, on the fast side, but you know it, it doesn't make sense to lump them together with that. And it also, you know, it opens up an, a, light, a nice little space, you know, because you have, you know, fast and slow in this defense, I actually have this graphing with three uh, blobs. Uh, but then there's there's room for another blob down there, which would be again, kind of enigmatic category, but again, people have suggested repeatedly that some, there might be some things that we maybe should describe as disorders, uh, where actually, you're you know emotional defenses against dangers are abnormally uh, low so people are are not you know being you know too little they experience too little say anxiety and fear and worry and and so forth and we don't have so the dsm doesn't really have conditions that you could classify this way which you know of course links into it links to the problem of how you define a disorder <laughs> and I don't know if you want to go there, but if you want to go there, uh, if you th- so I, I'm, I agree mostly with Jerome Wakefield uh, the, and the idea that a disorder is not a natural kind. There's not something in nature that we, we actually call, you know, should be called a disorder, and there's a hard line what is a disorder, what's not. So there's what he proposes, like the disorders strictly defined are things where there's a dysfunction. That's the objective. So if you you understand the function of the system, then you can see, okay, it's not functioning as it should now. It's not functioning as it's designed to function. But to have something that you would call a disorder, you also need some kind of judgment that it's being harmful to the person or or to society. And that part is not in the mechanism itself. It's some kind of judgment. It could change. Things that are considered disorders in one place in time might not be considered disorder in a different place of time. And uh, I buy it, you know, people have been, some people are very critical of this argument, so there's a lot of debate. I try to, to, you know, uh, change my opinions over time, but I kind of circle back to this idea, and I think it's very powerful, very, very true. So um, it means that some things that might actually be dysfunctional in a strict sense uh, might will never be really recognized as disorders because they don't have this harmful perception. So people who are, for example, you know, say, people are abnormally um, carefree and not anxious, they actually have a serious problem, they don't get scared when they really kind of should, in a sense, I mean, we, we could map these and maybe we have evidence that no, their system is not just a, an adaptive extreme of distribution, there's actually something broken in their fear system, they're, you know. It's not, let's say we could say that, which is very tricky to do because defences are are, are weird. (laughs) So when we're talking about defences, it's actually, and again, Randy Nancy has, you know, does some good theory about the smoke detector principle and how you should set. So actually defences might be designed to fail at certain conditions. So it's not, you know. Failure is not, is not evidence of, of maladaptation for defenses, it's, um, it's again, a very tricky uh, kind of, of mechanism. But if we had evidence that this kind of, of, of behavior is a broken mechanism, uh, still people might just not come to see it as a disorder, and so it will never end up in the DSM. See what I mean? So you could, so the fact that there's a missing spot in there, people have remarked on this, for a disorder that, that reflect mainly the uh, insufficient, let's say insufficient activation of defenses, it's probably not a coincidence that there's a blank spot in there because it's probably if people actually have that condition said, so, you know, why not? <laughs> uh, it would be strange if there wasn't something like that. Uh, they, it wouldn't probably be seen as a disorder Uh, because it doesn't appear harmful or doesn't feel harmful. And the one condition that I found in the DSM that that could be mapped in this way and and, and, uh, I don't, I don't remember the the, the exact, but it's basically um, children who are uh, indiscriminate in their attachment behavior. So they they don't fear strangers, they attach to strangers in in the inner city. And uh, that is actually, um, I I will uh, but anyways that that kind of thing is actually classified as a disorder in, in a DSM and the reason it is it's because so- socially we recognize that that's putting children in danger <laughs> that's a harmful component but for adults we don't have this perception that adults who would are fearless and and uh, you know end up doing stupid things because they don't have you know, emotional defenses are you know we should protect them so no disorders so anyways so it's an interesting you know um, so it could be eventually that some people have suggested that if we focus more on the dysfunction part, so if we start redefining disorders more narrowly and we require evidence of dysfunction before we classify them as disorders, uh, we should be filling up that spot. And maybe some some disorders that seem you know are currently in the DSM, they should be taken out uh, because they're event- you know not dysfunctions, maybe they're just functional variance uh, is if Wakefield, if Wakefield is right <laughs> that the way we think about disorders really is not really just about dysfunction but it's more, more, more broad um, and even beyond Wakefield there might be some things that we all agree they're not dysfunctions but we want to do something about them anyway <laughs> so let's say you know blood pressure now it's, it's tricky let's say you have your blood pressure is, is it's a bit high <laughs> you know, is that a dysfunction? I mean, probably n- not. Right? I mean, there's probably some uh, some parts of the spectrum where would, you can make an argument that it's not working properly. There's going to be a whole range of, you know, blood pressure in which, you know, it's, it's still a normal variant. And so you go to your doctor, they're like, okay, you know, you have this blood pressure, it's high. And it's like, okay, what do I do about it? Well, <laughs> it's an adaptive, it's probably an adaptive, variant, you know, and there's a trade-off. So you're risking more I know, I'm just making it up, so don't you know but you're risking more heart disease. But it's protecting you from these and these other disorders. So you know you know, just go home and be happy. You're like, wait, can't I do anything you know, anything about it? And so there, I, I'm suspecting that even over time, even if we got, get more biological in our definition of disorders, there will be room for things that are strictly speaking not disorders in, a, in a, you know, in, in terms of dysfunction, uh, but we still want to kind of consider them as disorders because um, because we want to we want to do something about it. And at the same time, there will be things that actually we can show that they are dysfunctions that will never get to the. Get in the in the diagnostic systems because people don't <laughs> don't perceive them as 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 uh, diseases. So, okay, yeah. What do you think about that? What, do you, what <laughs> the Not definition actually. of disorder? Because you've talked, you know, you talked to uh, other other, you know, uh, evolutionary psychologists and psychiatrists. So, um, what's your what's your perception might, of this debate? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> Well, I mean, I guess that it's a bit complicated because, mm-hmm. I mean, you refer to several different things there. And I guess that one of the most interesting, or at least one that I find the most interesting of them all, uh, because I've also talked uh, on my show with a philosopher of psychiatry, mm-hmm. and at a certain mm-hmm. point there you sure. were referring to the fact that there's always a moral component to how we classify disorders, uh, right. and some of them, historically speaking, uh, for example, in the case of even mm-hmm. homosexuality, mm-hmm. for sure. example, it has been considered a... Uh, mental disorder until recently at least in certain parts of the globe and it was basically social condemnation Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. people that were homosexual in that case so uh, i guess that i mean there's the component of uh, evolutionary psychology about trying to understand uh, why the behaviors that are associated with certain things that we classify as disorders, certain clusters clusters of behaviors, have evolved, and if they are adaptations or if they are uh, byproducts of adaptations, or if it's just the fact that there are a certain percentage of people. Uh, where certain rare mutations occur, mm-hmm. uh, or, or for example, there's negative selection mm-hmm. uh, on certain mutations, but then because people keep reproducing, new ones come on board and then Uh that would be one of the reasons why, for example, there are certain conditions like schizophrenia, Mm -hmm. I guess, occur on around 1% of the population Mm -hmm. or at least the full-fledged version of it and, uh, I mean, uh, that percentage would mm-hmm. not decrease even though there's negative selection mm-hmm. or, uh, mm-hmm. on it because new mutation sure mutations sure will a, a mutation, mutation selection time.
1: balance yeah
0: yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. right, uh, right. Uh, I, I mean so i guess that there are several different ways that we can tackle. oh yeah sure the sure, sure. Uh, i was but,
1: wondering if you had any any particular you know uh, yeah, question on that. So maybe one thing I can I can say, uh, it's kind of, um, I think it's important whenever you're linking, uh, you know, evolution and and disorders, and this is probably for evolutionary medicine too. So um, so one thing that's, it's, it's a misunderstanding to some extent of the field, but uh, the idea that when you're making an argu- a functional argument, because what I, I, I'm saying is, uh, we can try to rebuild or, or at least you know, build an interesting, useful classification of disorders uh, based on functional principles. Mm-hmm. And the functional principles would be you know, some ideas derived uh, with some you know, uh, difficulty from, from life history theory uh, about patterns of behaviors and trade-offs and so forth. Um, that's a functional approach. But what a lot of people hear is that now you're thinking that disorders are functional. Mm -hmm. You know, this kind of, you know, hyper-adaptation is, so every no, they're not disorders that actually adapt the strategies. Uh, And so uh, it's probably useful to restate that that's not not what I mean at all. So what I'm saying is that uh, different disorders tend to be um, correlated with patterns of individual differences. and if you can make sense of those patterns that are functional in the sense that they reflect some, again, trade-offs, costs and benefits, and then allocations of the organism, then you can maybe make sense of things like, again, the, the developmental patterns, risk factors, comorbidities, and so forth. The disorders, itself, the disorders themselves, uh, well, that's very tricky. And I think, you know, the paradox is... Uh, the, a lot of people think that uh, an evolutionary approach makes is kind of a one size, you know, fits all, right? You now everything is an adaptation, everything is a strategy. Okay, what I, I really think is that an evolutionary approach gives you a view of disorders that's much more differentiated and more rich, th- and richer than uh, most of the competition, really. And I so because you have a lot of, you know, it, it gives you. Um, better grounding in thinking about how things can go wrong in, in various ways and you can go enough you know, all the way from things that are actually you know uh, strategies in, in an adaptive sense in terms of you know survival and reproduction and eventually you know uh, inclusive fitness but still uh they have some downsides and social costs and whatever or, or maybe and so we we See them as disorders, even if they're adaptive. You can make the case, for example, for, you know, psychopathy. At least certain variants of it uh, might fit the bill, or you know. Anyways, uh, but then you have, then you have some you know, pure dysfunctions, things that are just, and you can you can find good evidence that there's some uh, you know, mechanism that regulates behavior that gets um, disrupted by, you know, could be mutations, could be infections, could be, you know, uh, experiences that are just too stressful to bear, maybe in combination with some vulnerability that was pre-existing, and then you can actually, you have an understanding of the mechanism, you can show that it's just not working as it usually does, and it's kind of broken or or, uh, dysregulated. In the middle of that, there is an incredibly long, you know, long spectrum of things, you have, you know, mismatches, uh, where, uh, again, people argue, but there will should be you know often think of mismatches maybe it's kind of a rare thing you know i won't go there but uh things that were adaptive might not be adaptive anymore so there's kind of you know attention uh so maybe it's it's a trade that used to promote fitness and now it doesn't but you can see ways in which you actually could have fitness even if you have some costs and now maybe the costs uh, uh, have come to outweigh the benefits so you want to trade it and then you have you know uh,
0: could, could I, could I yeah, just sure. interrupt? Oh, yeah, sure, absolutely. Be, be, because th- there's a very interesting idea that just came to my mind. Yeah. Because, yeah. I, I mean, the, uh, the several different ways we classify disorders. And you mm. referred to evolutionary yeah. mismatch. <clears throat> and one of the things that came to my mind was, so it could be the case that it, it would also be important for us to classify certain clusters of behaviors as disorders mm. because because people in the environments that we have created, mm-hmm. if they have that kind of profile, let's mm-hmm. say, they are dysfunctional, and mm-hmm. they wouldn't be dysfunctional from an evolutionary perspective mm-hmm. if they lived, for example, in a more traditional society, mm-hmm. like an hunter-gatherer society or something like that, but because... We created these modern yeah. environments, and people to survive in on mm-hmm. in these environments have to do de- have to do this and that, yeah. and be yeah. exposed yeah. to this and uh, to these conditions. Then, in this particular context, uh, they would be dysfunctional.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, sure. I mean, it's you know again, defining a disorder again is not, it's not something that can be done objectively Completely objective. So if you buy this idea that the disorder is kind of a you know, there's a subjective component that you can't really take out, then of course things like that, that will you know uh, but no definitely, <sighs> and it, it, it's probably the case with some with some things. But yeah, I mean on the other hand, uh, one thing about mismatches since you know you, you brought it up is uh, well mismatch to some extent is just what happens all the time. So you, you know environments change, organisms, you know, co with one another, so it's not like, you know, there's an organism just matched to the environment and it just, I mean, maybe there's some, some exceptions like you know, stability over a long, long time, but in general, uh, so these are, you know, Every time you have major changes in, you know, social conditions or technological conditions, there there will be traits that were more useful before and become less useful from a fitness perspective and vice versa. It's so, not sure. Um, it, it's probably important to realize that mismatch is not just this kind of unusual and bizarre thing that happens sometimes, but to some extent, it's kind of the normal condition of, of organisms. Uh, you know, and actually, mismatches what drives evolution forward to some extent. So, uh, right. And then uh, adding to that, so then you have trade-offs. <laughs> so sometimes, you know, mechanisms can't can't do everything. You know, you have to, you know, in a way, make decisions. And so, being more predisposed to some kinds of disorders may actually make you less predisposed to other kinds of disorders. And you, people are starting to find this in in medicine as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and trade-offs can have bad consequences. Uh, at least from the perspective of well-being and mental health, also learning, you know, uh, that's a, that's another interesting uh, aspect. So a lot of you know, I <laughs> it's a lot of the kind of standard approaches to psychopathology, like you no know, psychotherapy, let's say, uh, psychotherapy approaches. They um, the assumption is that there's some kind of maladaptive learning. You're learning, I don't know, um, uh, let's say, uh, counterproductive cognitions or, or ideas about yourself, expectations about the world, way of regulating your emotions that are you know, counterproductive or kind of backfire. So this kind of, uh, this kind of maladaptive learning idea. And the thing is, you know, if you take an evolutionary approach to learning, and there's a whole uh, like, section of evolutionary theory that deals with how organisms can learn from the environment. Well that's, you know, you get some interesting insights because those, those models will tell you that, uh, you know, learning, first thing, the learning can be always, uh, can't always work. I mean, you're always making trade-offs even in learning. So if, you're, you know, for example, you want to be more flexible, uh, sometimes, you know, you will be more susceptible to, to uh, errors. Uh, if you want to be more conservative in your learning, then you're missing out on some on some opportunities. Uh, you know, learning adaptively can actually get you into some blind spots. So even if you're, let's say, an optimal learner right, uh, about your environment, you might end up in, in points where you actually kind of learn the wrong thing about the environment and you get stuck in vicious circles. So your behavior will be maladaptive, even if your learning systems are optimally designed. So this this thing about the trade-offs involved in, uh, you know, learning and, and managing social information. So for example, do you want to trust people? <laughs> uh, be very trustful and just believe what they tell you. That's dangerous, you know, very dangerous in, in certain ways. Do you want to be mistrustful? Maybe be a bit paranoid, you know, but, uh, but those are the thing is uh, there's not one <laughs> best way to do it right? There's, there's really cost and benefits and so on. So there's that developmental processes can, you know, uh, are tuned in a certain way and to the extent they're sensitive to the environment, there's a, there's a risk of, uh, of maladaptations and so on. So there's the big picture, it's really a spectrum of many, many different ways in which, uh, on the one hand, adaptive mechanisms can break down and get dysregulated or when for different reasons which have to do you know evolutionary changes over evolutionary time or changes over developmental time or just the trade-offs and compromises that you you, you inevitably have in regulating complex behaviour things can get get you to a point where it's either maladaptive or maybe still adaptive but undesirable from a subjective perspective and then you have the other extremes in which you have some, you know, conditions that are in fact, you know, biologically adaptive in the sense that you will, you know, maybe reproduce and maybe your you know, all things included, your fitness is positive, there's maybe positive selection on it at least at certain times, at certain places, uh, but it's still, you know, socially regarded as, as not so good, for example, because it, it hurts other people, mostly because it hurts other people, <laughs> like you could say, you know, narcissists do pretty well. Uh, in a number of ways you know even extreme narcissists uh, not in the long term but they maybe don't need to you know it can be uh, at the same time um, that society agrees that we, we treat that as a disorder uh, and I think there's you know there's a reason for that it's not, it's not completely uh, arbitrary. But you know, there's a whole spectrum. And I actually think that especially compared with, uh, I mean, there's a there's an approach to, to, to psychopathology that tries to be as atheoretical as possible. Um, and it, it's less concerned with the cause of disorders and the, the theology of disorders, more concerned you know, mapping them and, and, and describing them. But then uh, other approaches have tried to explain disorders, so, you know, cognitive, you know, People who do cognitive therapy, uh, there's a background of you know uh, explanation. There's an explanatory background. How do disorders arise? How do people get to be depressed or to be uh, phobic or to be uh, this and that? Um, and so on. For you know, for psychoanalysis and other major approaches have, have tried to explain disorders. And usually, they tend to, uh, you know, again, my my hunch is because they don't have a solid grounded theory of what the mind and behavior is for and how it evolves, they tend to eventually narrow, you know, narrow down to kind of one explanation for pretty much everything or or, or most things. Um, And it's, it's, I don't see, I'm thinking of of exceptions right now to kind of contradict myself, but for example, I mean you talk to, um, I think case in point, talk to Stephen Hayes Uh, And so uh, ACT, I think, by the way, is a very sensible approach to therapy, but in terms of the etiology, um, I think it's it's very narrow because you have a lot of people arguing that basically, um, you know, um, how do you call them, experiential avoidance, right, Is, is basically the main cause of mental suffering. Right. So there's, you know, it's kind of, a, and it's about, it's a uh, it's very kind of behavioristic approach to psychopathology, so the, the whole idea there is that you learn from, again, you know, contingencies and then, you know, relational learning and so forth, but basically you learn from the environment, then you get stuck into bad learning, maladaptive learning, and you avoid your feelings and so forth, and that's the, the pathway to different types of psychopathology. So, and I think it's in you know, its valid description in some cases, uh, but I just, bring an example of something that's, it's not old-fashioned, what I'm saying, is it's not like a, you know, a, a clinical theory of a hundred years ago. It's stuff that's current now and people are, you know, teaching and, and learning. And it strikes me how kind of, you know, in, in the broad landscape of all the possible things that can give rise to a disorder, it actually it concerns itself with a very narrow slice of it. Um, so I actually think an evolutionary approach has a kind can- can- counterintuitive or surprising virtue, of really alerting you to the fact that disorders are are definitely not one thing. There's not one kind of process. There's all sorts of ways organisms can be designed in a way that makes them vulnerable. Um, and sometimes vulnerabilities are real. Sometimes are are apparent, and they're not uh, really <laughs> vulnerabilities. But, and this idea of trade-offs is also something that's very hard for Uh, Well, in medicine as a a whole, I think that's, you know, one concept that, let's say, uh, standard medicine, mainstream medicine really struggle with these trade-offs. And the same for psychiatric clinical psychology. There's there's this idea that you can, I mean, at least, I don't think so much in therapy. That's the funny thing. Uh, In therapy, uh, people are not really trying to get perfect you want to manage, I mean, you learn to manage, uh, you know, your emotions, your, your environment in a way that makes more sense, but you no, know, trade-offs are, are the stuff of, of this kind of, you know, if you want to become more in a certain way, you would be less in a certain way, you pay some costs, you know, it's always uh, like that, but the, the theories usually don't incorporate these in a deep way, theories of, of uh, and so there is a certain kind of disconnection between the uh, theories about the origin of disorders and then the way you actually treat them, that's, uh, that's kind of interesting. And I think again, uh, more grounding in this idea that organisms have to, you know, struggle <laughs> with competing, you know, competing goals. Uh, each goal has slightly different you know, rules and requirements and so on. Um, there's, you know, individual differences are real they are, they are result of a result of a complex history of selection in which you know, different factors might contribute. Uh, development is uh, again intricate, we don't quite understand development, you know, uh, that's, that's, that's I think true. Uh, if you put this all together, it actually gives you I think a, uh, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but it, it's a very, uh, let's say, a realistic um, like a background. And on this background, you can then you know entertain different hypotheses. So it doesn't guide you; it doesn't tell you what you know. Okay, what is schizophrenia? Well, I don't know. You know, I don't know. Could be a number of things. You know, it definitely looks like it's a dysfunction in a number of ways. Uh, there's also evidence that the predisposition to psychosis can have some benefits. Uh, we we still don't know exactly the, the 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 evolutionary history of the genes that are involved in that. You know, we but. Then you can explore, but as you explore, I think you'll be grounded in a, uh, in a rich and realistic view of what, you know, what you're talking about, which is essentially human beings, you know, social primates that do certain things and have been selected in a certain environment that have certain, you know, motivations and some... Uh, so that's, uh, I think, the, um, where it boils down to. And if everything in this book I, you know, I wrote, turns out to be to be wrong. Uh, uh which is a possibility you know again i think it's worth exploring so for example this classification system i'm proposing again it's tricky because it's not again it's not oh yeah you have a checklist and when you have these 10 things then it, no it's it's tricky because you know you have issues of measurement issues sometimes um the benefit of a trait can be uh can be apparent in people who have a predisposition to the disorder but not in people who have the disorder for schizophrenia, for example, it's just you know people who have a, a, a kind of low-level psychotic symptoms. Those people tend to be more creative. There's some evidence they can be more kind of sexually attractive. And this is the basis for some of some of the, the things I'm saying. Uh, if you look at people with schizophrenia, they, they don't have these qualities. So they, they, usually, they're less creative, uh, the lower IQ. They're not sexually very sexually attractive. So, you know, uh, so if you just look at the disorder. You get you get a very different picture so it's uh, it's a very long <laughs> and, and and convoluted process to actually get to and and you need some guiding principles so I'm putting forward this kind of fast low defense classification as a possibly useful guiding principle I think you can make progress and then you know and then we'll see but I think what's going to stay about the the evolutionary approach is really um, well a I, I think you, you I I think you're right to emphasize motivation because that's something that is is kind of it's everywhere so you know everyone who doesn't you know psychotherapy or I mean, obviously you're dealing with motivations all the time that's you know where emotions come from so you know, it's almost you know obvious that motivations are, are, are important part of what you're doing but uh, models of psychopathology uh, they don't usually don't have a a reasonable or solid theory of motivation. And even a even, uh, models of like psychopathology are based on affective processes, uh, like you know, internalizing, externalizing, and so forth. They, they they end at the level of the emotions and don't ask the question, okay, where does, where did this emotion come from? What systems are producing this emotion? So there's a, it's kind of a gap and um, it, it, it's a bit everywhere. So that's going to stay, I think. And the other thing is, um, I think an evolutionary approach to psychopathology, but also to medicine, more you know, like disorders more broadly, really opens your mind to the fact that disorders can arise in a multitude of ways. They're not, you know, they're really not one thing. In a way, we I mean, we all know that. You know, it's it seems like a very intuitive idea, but if you look at what, how people theorize about you know mental disorder, for example, that that's that's not the way they think. There's usually a tendency to find okay, what's the cause for disorders so these and, and otherwise they're like okay the other approach is very unsatisfying. so unsatisfying they say okay let's take a biopsychosocial perspective and so okay there's biological factors but there's also you know psychological factors and there's social factors blah 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 all together and then you're you you, you don't understand that you know even a bit better than because it's it's uh, it's generic that's the thing so you want to be open to a multitude of processes but also have enough ground that you can actually map them uh, and that i think is is uh probably the main contribution of a evolutionary outlook on on, uh, on psychopathology uh,
0: okay so do you think that we should end on that We've already done <laughs> more better, than two hours. i think yeah no i know i know it's
1: uh i think we might <laughs> <laughs> if you have any i don't know closing question or or uh I'm
0: happy to. I mean, I think we've already run through basically all of my questions, all of the questions that I've prepared. Uh, And I mean, we've already touched on Hmm. most of the main topics of your book, right? Oh, by by, by the way, before we go, uh, there's the book. Uh, What are the best places on the internet for people to find your work generally? Oh, okay. Well, I have a website.
1: So I, I have a personal website and it you know has my publications, links to all my work. So
0: um, that's probably it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I will be leaving links to your work in the okay. description box of the interview so that people can go and check it out and also for the book. And I mean, it was really a pleasure to have you on the show and to talk to you. It was, it was a really interesting conversation. So. Yes. Okay. Take care hello everybody thank you for watching this interview until the end as you might have noticed i've been doing regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields so to keep the channel sustainable i would really like to ask you to please visit my patreon page and to consider making a pledge there any amount even just one dollar would already be a great help otherwise and if you like what i'm doing you can also support me via subscribestar or paypal And please share the video, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons and PayPal supporters: Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchet, Per Olaarsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gillinas, Francis Ford, Hans Fredrik Sunda, Brian Rivera, Lucas Stafiniak, Sergio Condriano, Yana Heninen, Ricardo Vladimiro, Greg Healy, John Connors, Adam Castle, Vega Giddy, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Vissel, David Dias. Annie Ankata, Jacob Klinkby, Dr. Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Ruth Voss, and Bo Weingard. And also my three producers, Isar Webb, Rosie, and Jim Frank. Thank you for all.